majestic hymns that honor your son. We've read your word. We've prayed together. Now we come to that point in the service where we desire to hear you speak from your word. Father, we pray that you would bless the instruction from it and that even this morning you would stir within our hearts a greater commitment to the nations and for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for pointing us heavenward and Christward. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for your rich hospitality yesterday, the day before yesterday, and then again this morning. It's a delight to be with each one of you here. Delight to have my wife and five children with us here as well. What a treat it is for us to get to enjoy Hawaii these days together and to be with God's people together. We have been thinking Friday and Saturday about the Great Commission and about missions in particular. Now, if you have not been here Friday or Saturday, that's okay. Uh, we will step into the text this morning without any sense of expectation that you've heard previous sermons that are in this series. I want to invite you along those lines then to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. We saw together Friday night the missionary's mandate from Romans chapter 10 and the fact that it's God's plan that the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of his word will be used to bring men and women to faith in Christ. We saw yesterday's morning in the plenary session the missionary's message and we looked at the gospel itself from Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. And then this morning the third sermon in this series is entitled The Missionary's Moment. The Missionary's Moment from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Now, lest we think too narrowly, unless I am misunderstood by the title of the sermon, the application, as you will see, is for all of us here. For as we will see, each one of us who are believers, we are called to be missionaries, to be ambassadors, to be messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be agents of His gospel, men and women who proclaim his word. And so this is not a narrow sermon from a narrow text about a niche of people called to career missionary service. No, it's a broad sermon from a broad text about all of God's people and all of us are called to be representatives of Christ amongst our neighbors and amongst the nations. Revelation chapter 3, begin reading with me please in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, and who is true, and who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who, have, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven 
from my God in my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've been thinking about the work of spreading the gospel, I have shared and reminded us in the previous two sessions that there's a, a basic pattern, a basic sequence of events when God does a stirring amongst his people for the greater expansion of the gospel. Historically, we see this, for instance, in the launch of the modern missions movements and through individuals like Adoniram Judson and William Carey and folks like that who God stirred in their heart and amongst their churches a greater vision, a broader vision to take the gospel to distant places. And the basic sequence goes something like this. First is an awareness, an increased awareness of, of the neediness of people apart from Christ. A doctrinal awareness that the preaching of the gospel and that Jesus Christ alone saves and that people must place their faith explicitly, specifically in Christ to come to salvation. An awareness along these lines. Then that awareness leads to a, a burden, a sense that uh, if, if, if Christ must be known and Christ must be professed to be saved, what do we do about people who are yet to encounter Christ and to hear of Christ? And so that awareness intensifies into a, a burden. And then that burden leads to greater, to greater prayer, a, a prayer for God to raise up workers in the harvest, a prayer for God to reach the nations. And the more we pray for the Lord to raise up workers in the harvest, so very often the more we see that, that, that we are those workers. And awareness leads to a burden, which leads to deepening prayers, which then leads to going. And you find yourself going to take the gospel to your neighbors. You find yourself willing to go on short-term mission trips. You find yourself willing to go on long-term mission trips. And you find God calling out some even for career-type, lifelong missionary service and going. But not just going and sending. And you have churches that, that begins to be developed within their DNA, their very identity, the culture of that congregation, to be the type of church that sends people out that sends people on short-term trips, that sends people long-term, that sends people even for lifetime service in distant places, and then not only sending but sustaining, that God puts within the hearts of people to give in sacrificial ways to sustain that missionary service. For if missionaries are having to come home every few months to raise support, that undermines their effectiveness on the field. And so to sustain that work, to sustain these gospel partners, that is the sequence that tends to happen. Where might you be in that sequence? Where might you be in, in that basic unfolding of events? Are you aware of the lostness around you? Are you doctrinally aware of the need for men and women to place their faith in Christ to be saved? Are you burdened over that lostness? Are you praying against that lostness? Are you willing to go? Are you willing to send? Are you willing to sustain? We come to Revelation chapter 3 this morning, verses 7 through 13. And at first glance, you may be thinking, what does this have to do with missions? But at a closer look, you'll see it has everything to do with missions. Because in this passage, in this letter, our Lord speaks to this church about open doors of ministry set before them. Open doors of ministry set before them. And we know from reading Scripture that open doors are a, a common biblical metaphor for ministry opportunities. The open door, the metaphor, is the chosen metaphor in this passage itself quite clearly. 
And we know that doors are common to everyday life, so it's a metaphor that we can understand. We are accustomed to doors. We are dependent upon doors. Doors provide an essential service, don't they? Closed doors ensure privacy, ensure aloneness, keep out the weather. Locked doors keep out burglars or unwanted visitors. Open doors communicate a receptivity, a hospitality. When I was a kid, I grew up in the Deep South uh, in Alabama, and summers were hot and humid, and, and uh, routinely when I would go out to play, my parents would lock the door behind me, locking me out. Has anyone in the room ever experienced that from a parent? I believe they have. I see some nods. Amen. I see a poor little guy out here is raising his hand. <laughs> we know the utility of doors. We know how they are used. And so we understand this picture here that open doors, biblically, is a picture of ministry opportunity. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 through 9, he said, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ when a door was opened for me in the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, excuse me, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Devote yourselves to prayer, Paul writes, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us all as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. So this open door is a common biblical metaphor for, for ministry opportunity and is this metaphor that Jesus uses in this letter to the church. It's the metaphor before us this Lord's Day morning, an open door. Now, I'm tipping my hand on the front end of the sermon so that you might get better personal application. Be asking yourself as we look at these verses, what is God saying to me about open doors for ministry and mission opportunity in proximity to where you are? With your family, your workplace, your community, your neighborhood. And then what open doors of ministry opportunity, of mission opportunity, might God be placing before you even beyond this island. We find ourselves in the book of Revelation in this passage, and it's an interesting section in this book. The Apostle John is writing. It's the year about A.D. 90. Our Lord has, has been ascended back to heaven now, roughly some six decades. And the Apostle John is the last living disciple. He is in exile on this island of Patmos, and he is there because of his faith in Christ and his witness for Christ. He has been banished to this island, this island of Patmos, so he is aged. He is alone, but chapter 1 tells us that he is worshiping. He is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And John is worshiping, chapter 1 tells us, on the Lord's day. And as he's doing so, he hears a voice, a recognizable voice, a voice he hasn't heard in decades. And lo and behold, he looks and he sees it is the voice of his Lord, the voice of our Lord. And he, he hears it, he beholds it, and he's stricken by the glory of our resurrected Lord in all of his blazing splendor, and he's stricken by fear. He falls to the ground as a dead man. But we are told, we see our Lord tells him to rise, and our Lord affirms him, and our Lord speaks to him, and our Lord unfolds for John 
this book that we know as the Revelation or the Apocalypse, the great unveiling of what is to come. Now, when you begin to read the book of Revelation, especially as you get deeper into it, it's, it's easy to get lost. And so what does this mean? And so what does that mean? And admittedly, there are parts that are perplexing to interpret and to understand. But these early chapters really are not that way. In fact, Jesus tells us and John quite clearly what is before us in this book. In chapter 1, verse 19, he tells John, he says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And so a basic principle of biblical interpretation is to take the clues the text gives you. And Jesus here quite clearly, and John captures it quite succinctly and clearly, exactly what is to come. The things that which you have seen is chapter 1, where John records the revelation of Jesus to himself. And records for us in, in the, all of its dazzling splendor how our Lord looks that day before John. And then he says the things which will the, the things which are is a reference to chapters two and three, these seven letters to these seven churches. And then the things which will take place after these things, chapters four through twenty-two, this great unfolding of what is to come. So Jesus then is speaking to John a particular word for each one of these churches. And brothers and sisters, let me remind you this morning, Jesus knows his churches. Jesus loves his churches. Jesus is not preoccupied this Lord's day with another galaxy somewhere, distantly removed and distracted from what is taking place on this island, in this congregation, during this hour. Jesus has perfect, omniscient knowledge of his congregations. He has a mitigated affection for his churches. He is in proximity to them. He is building them. He is shepherding them. And so this morning I say to you, Jesus is committed to this flock. As long as this flock is committed to Jesus and to his word. Jesus then begins to give John the seven letters to the seven churches. These are seven literal churches. They are located in seven literal cities. These cities were findable on a map then. They are findable on a map today. And so to each one of these churches, Jesus speaks to them about, about who they are, about what they are doing right, about what they are doing wrong. He gives them specific words of instruction, specific words of direction. And to the church at Philadelphia, the sixth church, he gives them a specific word of ministry opportunity. We see this church, chapter 3, verse 7. It's located in the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia. We know that Philadelphia, of these seven churches in these seven cities, Philadelphia was a, a much smaller city, say, than Ephesus or of Smyrna. The city of Philadelphia was strategically located, a major crossroads for those traveling east to west, and particularly those going east. Philadelphia was perched on a hilltop, making it easy to defend, and it had a, a bustling little economy because of its crossroad, and so it was, there was trade activity, there was commercial activity, and so it was a, a vibrant, healthy, small city there in Asia Minor. But the city had a major problem. It was located on a geological fault line. So much so that in A.D. 17, an earthquake struck the area, devastated the city, leveled the city, and subsequent aftershocks shook it for years to come. 
So the residents of the city, they live with this, this memory of earthquakes, and these aftershocks occasionally will remind them that they were on an active fault line. So they live with this sense of fear that another earthquake may strike and level the city. In the perfect wisdom of God, he directs Paul, leads Paul to plant a church in Philadelphia. We think Paul planted it. And we know Paul's church planting strategy was to go to cities, establish churches, and then as people came and went from and through those cities, the gospel would percolate out from those cities. The gospel would spread out from those cities and it would metastasize throughout the region. And so much so that in very short order, the gospel is going to distant places, distant, far distant places. So this is a strategic city with a fundamental flaw, the geological fault line, but with much gospel promise. And so in this place, Paul establishes a church. Never fail to see the strategic kingdom opportunities this church has. Think about this congregation this morning, brothers and sisters, Makikilo Bible Church, you're strategically located. You're on an island in the Pacific with people coming and going to distant places and from distant places. You can look eastward and see the the continental U.S. You can look westward and see island nations and then into East Asia. You are strategically located. Moreover, given the military influence and impact on this church and constituency within this church, people are coming and going, and there is a unique gospel impact, a unique ministerial opportunity that you have here, brothers and sisters. Now, as we look in verse 7, and we begin to look specifically at what Jesus says to this church, the first thing striking about this passage is that Jesus does not bring a word of correction to this church. Jesus speaks with absolute perfect knowledge to each one of these seven congregations, so much so that five of them, he speaks to them about things they need to establish, things they need to correct spiritual things they need to pursue, sins they need to avoid. But Jesus, to the church at Philadelphia, finds no fault. This church, Philadelphia and Smyrna, are the only two churches free from correction from our Lord. And so we know that our Lord speaks to them words of hopefulness and words of promise and encourages them to be strong in light of persecution. And that they did for this church in Philadelphia maintain a gospel witness for centuries. In spite of persecution, in spite of Islamic conquest, there remained a gospel witness, a strong gospel witness in the city all the way through the 14th century. That is this church, this church in Philadelphia. Now notice what begins to be said here. Verse 7, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. The angel is the, the messenger in these letters. The, the, the senior pastor, the one in spiritual leadership of the church. And so he's saying, this message is to be communicated to the pastor, to the spiritual leader, and then read beyond the spiritual leader to the congregation as a whole. So it'd be just like, like one of our missionaries from this church that we've interacted with this week, going back to their, their, their place of service and sending an email in a couple months to the church about what God's doing on their place of mission and, and wanting to bring a word of greeting. And, and, it would be, and, then, that, and then Pastor John may come and read that, that word of update. That's what's taking place here. Jesus is speaking to them a specific word of update, a specific word of instruction. And he says to them, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. And then he begins in verse 7 to, to describe himself in a particular way. 
Now, each one of these churches, Jesus describes himself in a distinct way, and each time he describes himself, it's, it's, it's germane to the needs of the church, to the ministry moment of that church. And so Jesus describes himself to the church at Philadelphia in ways that are particularly relevant to their ministry moment and to the words of instruction that Jesus is giving them. He says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts no one will open, says this. Jesus says, first, I am holy. I am the pure, unblemished one. Jesus does not sin. Jesus cannot sin. He is holy in his essence, who he is. He's holy in his ethics, how he acts. He is the holy one. He was born on a holy night. His book is the Holy Bible. Where he is is holy ground. His land is the holy land. His worshipers are to have holy hands. His spirit is the Holy Spirit. His church is to be a holy people. So Jesus is reminding us that, that I, am a, I am the holy one, but also I am true. Notice, I am true. He does not merely speak the truth. He is the truth. As he declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so he's saying, you can trust me. I can trust him. He's more trustworthy than any created being. And we can follow him and we can depend on him. He is true. And that's a relevant word because he's telling this church and he's telling us through this passage that we are to follow his call. And if Jesus puts a specific word of instruction before his people, we can bank on that word. We can build our lives on that word. We can pursue ministerially exactly what that word is because he will not fail us. His word is always true. There are times in life where I hear people talk about what God has called them to do and they get so layered up with contingencies and I'm thinking, will you just not take Jesus at his word? I lead a seminary in Kansas City, as John has mentioned, and, and God has blessed that institution. We have, this year we'll have um, about 5,000 students in full headcount online on campus in total. Well, every year, hundreds and hundreds of students move to Kansas City. There comes this point to where to go to seminary, if you're actually going to relocate, it just takes a step of faith. And you're going to have to perhaps sell a home, find a job in Kansas City. If you're married, move your spouse. If you have children, move your family. And all of that logistically, yes, is complicated. And so we do our best as an institution, help students relocate, help them find jobs, help them find places of ministry service. We have campus housing. We do everything we can do to make that logistically feasible. But there always comes a point for every single student where to come requires something of a step of faith. And there's always this kind of moment of truth of will we or will we not? And I tell students this who are looking to move, and I say this with absolute integrity because I'm now in my 10th year and I'm yet to see a family move to Kansas City to pursue theological education who had to move home after a month or two because it just didn't work out for them in the logistics. No, if God is calling them to come, God is aware of their circumstances. God is providentially going before them in their circumstances. God is using his people to help meet their circumstantial needs. But there's a point in time where that step of faith must be taken. Brothers and sisters, as we think this morning about open doors of ministry God may have before you, before us, there comes a point in time always where a step of faith must be taken. The logistics, yes, we should be prudent, 
We should exercise wisdom. We should be thorough. We should not be, 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 be um, irresponsible. But if God is calling you to do something, there's always a step of faith that must be taken. And the one who's telling you to take it is the one who is true, who is not confused, who is not misinformed, who does not speak with a forked tongue. He's true. Then notice what he says. Verse 7. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, says this. What is this key of David? It's a picture of sovereign authority. It's an allusion to Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22, King Hezekiah is ruling over the Davidic kingdom, and his royal treasurer, Eliakim, held the keys to the treasury. And Eliakim alone possessed these keys, and he alone could lock and unlock, and his decision was final. We might think of Eliakim as a type of Christ. Isaiah 22, 22, the prophet says, Then I will put the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Again, this picture of keys. And of course, it's all reminiscent of, of Jesus saying in Matthew 16 that he has the keys to the kingdom. And so Jesus saying, I am holy, I am true, and I am sovereign over heaven and earth. I alone open doors, I alone shut doors. My decisions are final. My rule is unchallenged. He says, verse 8, I know your deeds. Now here in these verses that lands as a word of affirmation because Jesus does not follow that up with correction. He follows that up with ministry opportunity. But he's reminding that church, reminding us this morning that he is Lord over his church and he is knowledgeable over his church. He is one with his church. Now, verse 8, he says, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. What is this talk of little power? Is this an insult? Is this like looking at a, a, a small person and like making a reference to their smallness? Is Jesus in saying, you know, you don't have a lot of power, you have a little power? I don't think it's the case at all. We know historically this is one of the smaller churches of these seven letters, and some of these cities were major cities like Ephesus, and it was a larger church, a larger city, and we can surmise a larger church within that city because of just the realities of population. And Jesus perhaps may say to Ephesus, if they got their love right, you have a big opportunity. But to this church, he's saying, you're a little church, Philadelphia, and you have a little power, and that's good. You're measuring up. And then he introduces for them this biblical metaphor that we've already explored, at least preliminarily, this picture of ministry service being before them. And so he's saying, in a sense, Matthew 25 is being applied here, this word of, of the parable of a talents. They have been faithful in small things. They've handled responsibly the spiritual opportunities God has placed before them in the here and now. And so he's presenting before them something greater. Remember the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25? A wealthy man went away and he had three servants and he was giving his servants a stewardship while he was away on a distant journey. 
And time doesn't permit us to dig into the specifics of it, but recall these three that he had made a preliminary assessment as to who would probably be more faithful than others. And so to the ones he thought would be more faithful, one he left five talents, and the other he left two talents. And then finally, the one that he was suspect all along, he left a mere one talent. And again, these talents were metrics of weight, especially for of, of, um, of metrics of weight commonly for precious metals, think, think gold or silver. And these were massive sums of money. We're talking like professional athlete sums of money. And, and to the one he left five talents, the master went away, comes back, and his servant has stewarded that wisely, and five have become ten, and he commends them and says, because you've been faithful, I'll make you faithful more. And then the one he left two talents, it become four, and he commends that servant, and he says, because you've been faithful, and little, I'll, be, I'll make you faithful, I'll give you opportunity for more than the one he left one talent. He went and buried it. He hid it. And burying a treasure was a common form of savings in the ancient world, a common form of, of, of security in the ancient world. It was not a foolish thing to do on the surface. I mean, he did not lose it. It was not stolen. It was not squandered. He reproduced it when the master came home. But the servant had failed the instruction of the master to invest it and to grow it. So the master rejected him. He condemned him for that stunning lack of stewardship. So Jesus is saying to this church at Philadelphia, you got a little power. You've been faithful. So we're about to see you have withstood some persecution. And because of that, I'm placing a door before you of greater ministry opportunity. There's so many mistakes a church can make. Some churches view themselves more like a bank, and the, the, uh, the strategy is to store away money in case, you know, some massive catastrophe ever hits the church one day, and, and so we're well, like, like we, we are so flush, we don't even need God. It's not where you want to be, right? Other churches think so creatively about their future and their building plan and their five-year strategic plan and their 10-year strategic plan. It's like, it's like if Jesus came back, they'd be disappointed. They didn't get a chance to pull out their plan. I love the feel of this church at Philadelphia. They have stewarded well, evidently. They have been responsible quite clearly. Jesus has put a door before them of greater opportunity, and they are poised to move through it. What door of ministry opportunity is before you? What door for ministry opportunities before your family? What gospel opportunity stands before you? You need to walk through it. So what do we do with this? This phrase here about the open door, what, what is Jesus saying to us at this juncture in this passage about the open door? I think there are two, two, two gutters on each side of the road that, that people tend to fall into. The one gutter is where people will try to push down open doors that God is clearly shutting. I was in a missionary event, kind of like what we've had this weekend here um, last year. I was in a setting kind of like what we've had here and talking about missions and kindling our hearts to missions. And, and um, there was one individual speaking, and it was a, a relatively young lady, probably, probably in the 30s, and she wasn't a, a conference speaker. But she, she was there, and we were kind of having a time of reflection as a group about, about ministry opportunities and missionary opportunities. And, and this younger lady 
uh, was wanting us to pray for her opportunity. And she's talking about this opportunity, and, and she, she's putting it in terms of like, like God is calling her to go do this, but Satan is, 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 like, is, like, is like hindering it. And it was to go do water purification uh, work in Africa. And, um, and she's talking about, talking about it, and, and like she can't raise any money for it. Resources aren't coming in. She's talking about, talking about it. It's in this tribal area that's very, very dangerous. Sometimes God calls people there nonetheless. And then she's talking about, talking about it, and the fact if, if the money, when the money all comes through, she'll have to leave her husband and children for about six months to go do it. And she's talking about, and, and by, by the point I'm thinking, I don't think the Lord's opening this door. Maybe God's not opening this door if there's no funding, no clear pathway, uh, you've been in a dangerous place, away from your husband and children for six months. Maybe, like, maybe the lesson is this is not an open door. God has shut it. Conversely, a rather dramatic illustration of it, but a true one nonetheless, of an open door. I found myself a number of years ago, John, um, in Cincinnati, flying from Cincinnati to Los Angeles, actually for a shepherd's conference. And uh, we were living in Louisville at the time, my wife and I, and my flight took me through Cincinnati to go, to go west to Los Angeles and was there. And, uh, and I was waiting on my flight, and my flight was delayed. And I don't do delayed flights very well, okay? Maybe it's a sign of spiritual immaturity, I don't know. But I, I'm just not the most patient guy on the planet. Uh, when, I, when, when, a, when I am on hold and someone says, you know, thank you for your patience, I'm always thinking, thank you for assuming I'm patient. Uh, all these people, I will sometimes go right on a red light, even if I need to go left, just so I can keep moving. Uh, I have a bias towards action. Well, anyway, I'm there at the, at the, in the airport waiting. Our flight was delayed, flight was delayed, and like minutes had turned into a couple hours, and, and this, was, this was getting quite complicating for me. And so finally, they tell us we can board the plane, and, and I, I go on, I kind of have a little bit of a bad attitude because I'm thinking about everything that's been gunked up on the other end of my flight and my responsibilities and plans for that evening. And uh, I, I get to my seat, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in an in a exit row. Thank the Lord, given my height, I'm in an exit row. And uh, a lady sits down beside me. She's you know, a little bit older than I was. And, um, and I could tell that, you know, just getting situated and, and making small talk. And I just made a comment about, about the fact that, you know, I hate flight delays. I can't believe we're delayed. I'm glad to be taking off. And she said to me, she said, I, I never complain about delayed flights. And I'm thinking, boy, you, you, you know. God bless you. You got something I don't have. And uh, I said, really? I said, you don't? I said, well, man, I said, well, good for you. I said, I, I, you know, th this was disruptive for me. And she said, no, I learned long ago not to complain about missing a flight. I said, really? And she said, yeah. I said, well, why, why is that? She said, because I was, when I was a teenager, I was scheduled to be on Pan Am Flight 103. Dead serious. This is not preacher hyperbole here. This is dead serious. And some of you recall, that's the flight that blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland. And I said, really? Are you, are you serious? Yes. I said, well, did you live in Scotland? She said, no, I was there on a trip, and I was scheduled to fly back out. I said, really? And I said, well, what type of trip? I'm just curious what type of trip we're on. She says, I was um, with uh, a church youth group trip. I said, are you, are you serious? And she said, yeah, the, our youth group was scheduled to be on that flight. And I said, what type of church was it? She said, it was, it was a Baptist church. And I said, are, and I'm just, you know, everything's, I'm like, you're kidding me. And, uh, and I said, oh, are you, are, you, are you a Baptist? She said, oh, no, I just went with this church. And I said, well, are you, are you a Christian? And I'm not really, I just was like a, a student thing. I went with the church there. And so I'm thinking, okay, not, not, not a Christian, not a Baptist. Kind of a one-off type summer trip she went on. And, um, and I said, wow. And then she said, what do you do? <laughs> 
And I said, ma'am, I'm a Baptist minister. <laughs> and, and she was like, and I had been the one bug-eyed for five minutes, and now she was bug-eyed. And, uh, and she said, are you, are you serious? And I said, yeah. And I said, I'll tell you one more. I don't believe this is by, any of this is by chance. She said, really? I said, ma'am, God may have had you missed that flight years ago to save your life, but had you missed that connecting flight here to save your soul? She began crying. And flying from Cincinnati to Los Angeles, I got to walk through the gospel with her. And perhaps somewhere over Colorado, she came to faith in Christ. Now, I don't believe any of that's accidental. I don't believe there's a leaf blowing across that parking lot out there that isn't divinely ordained. God has numbered our days. He's numbered our steps. He knows our red lights. He knows our delayed flights. He knows everything else about us. Not only does he know it, he's superintending. And in God's providence, there evidently was a student group decades ago that was going to be on a flight that was going to crash. And in God's providence, he redirected them away. But in God's providence, he permitted that flight to go down. And then decades later, he put me on a delayed flight in this gallon day flight to talk about the gospel and to connect in side-by-side seats and everything else you can see that is incredible providential circumstances coming together. Well, brothers and sisters, like Ray Charles could see, that was an open door for me, right? That was clearly an open door. My question for you, and I know that we have to pull this together rapidly here, My question for you and for this church is what type of open door might God be placing before you? Notice what we see in these verses here. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have power. You've been faithful. Then he gets into speaking about the synagogue of Satan and persecution that is coming. And evidently, verse 9 and following, the synagogue of Satan were Jews who were persecuting these believers. They were ethnic Jews, cultural Jews, ceremonially Jewish, but they were not spiritually because they had not accepted Christ as the Messiah. And they are persecuting this church here. And Jesus is saying to these believers, I I know that what they are doing, but trust me, they will bow before you one day. What is more, because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, there's much debate about it. Perhaps this is a promise, um, a a promise of of Jesus taking his church away before the great tribulation. Uh, Perhaps this is a promise that that, that Jesus is saying that this persecution that is coming, um, I will give you grace to endure it, whether it was in the immediate term or more distantly. It's not quite clear here, but but what is clear is Jesus' commitment to his church. I love you. I know you. I will protect you ultimately. And I have before you a great opportunity for gospel service. So much so, he says... Verse 11 and 12, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take away your crown, your reward. For he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, the sign of the eternal state. And he will not go out from it anymore, that we will be a permanent fixture in the new heaven and the new earth where we will reign forever with him. 
And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem in which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. In other words, he's saying, though you have present persecution and hardship, I am with you. I will ensure your ultimate, uh, your, your ultimate faith in me. I will persevere with you. I will keep you and you will reign with me forever. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let me pull this together, just a few, few concluding words of application. So if, you've, if I've lost you somewhere along the way, kind of wake up and re-engage me here. Application number one, look for open doors. Look for open doors with your family, with your church, in your community, among the nations. Look for open doors. Number two, pray for wisdom when God has opened a door. Pray for wisdom when this is an open door from the Lord. That can be sensed biblically. It can be sensed circumstantially. It can be sent spiritually as far as even the, the ministry, the, the Spirit's ministry within you, leading you and directing you and giving you the, the joy of, uh, of that ministry work and that ministry assignment. Next, understanding that, they're, they're, that open doors don't necessarily stay open forever. There often is a contingency to an open door that God has before you, meaning if you don't step up and go through it, Perhaps God will raise up someone else who will. Next, faithfulness is rewarded. We see this here with this church. They have a little power, so he puts an open door before them. For us, let's be careful to steward what God has for us and to be faithful to walk through those doors and then not be shocked when God opens a greater door of service before us. Final word, as Jesus reminded us in this passage, he is true and you can trust him. If I had a million lives to live, I would live every one serving Christ based upon what I know now and his faithfulness to me these past 25 years. Every promise he has made, he has kept. Every door he has opened, he has walked through it with me. Every, every challenge that's shown up in my life, he's given me the grace to endure it. That is our good and faithful Lord our good and faithful good shepherd. He is true. You can trust him. So what is the missionary's moment? Brothers and sisters, we all are missionaries, at least in the lowercase m sense, in that we are to be agents for his gospel. And our moment is that open door, and there may be collective congregational open doors that this church senses in the season ahead to walk through. I know there also will be individual open doors of ministry service for each one of us who name his name. And may God give you the grace to enter into it and to honor him as you do. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for this conference. And I thank you for this congregation. Father, it is good and fitting and right that we think carefully about the ministry doors you have before us. Would you help this church to discern your will and to honor you by bearing much fruit in the ministry and mission work you place before them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.